0: Good evening. This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines.
1: The November electoral contests for governor and senator appear to be tied, according to a poll released today by Marquette University Law School. The survey of the Senate race between Senator Ron Johnson and Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes is nearly tied, with Johnson up 49% to Barnes 48%. An earlier post-primary poll had Barnes leading by about 7%. The the survey results on the gubernatorial race also indicates a close race between Governor Evers and his GOP challenger, Tim Mickels. In the poll, Evers won 47% of the vote to Michael's 44%. The poll also shows Governor Evers' approval rating continuing to drop ahead of the election, with 47% disapproving of his job as governor. This is only the second time more poll takers disapproved of Evers since he first took office.
0: After a judge refused to stay a ruling banning election clerks from curing absentee ballot forms, The State Election Commission officially withdrew its guidance on the topic today, the Capital Times reports. Ballot curing is a practice in which election of clerks fill in minor missing information on absentee ballots, such as the state or zip codes. Republican Commissioner and Chair Don Millis warned fellow commissioners off of voting against ending its acceptance of the practice, saying that refusing to withdraw the guidance could hurt the commission down the road. Millis noted that some Republican legislators have pushed to put an end to the Election Commission entirely and said that not withdrawing the guidance would only sign their death wish. The commission withdrew its previous guidance on on ballot curing in a four-to-one vote.
1: The opening of two Rockford, Illinois abortion clinics have been delayed, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Both clinics, to be opened by two separate doctors, would provide uh, both surgical and pill abortions for Wisconsin patients. One of the clinics, which will provide a range of family planning services, expects its building to be open by January. Their spokesperson said that city officials have been very supportive of their efforts. Madison physician Dennis Christensen is also planning to open a clinic in Rockford. He said that the city is attempting to block the clinic uh, through the use of a zoning ordinance. City officials say that they are merely applying the existing zoning to the property purchased by Christensen and that he would have to have the zoning changed. Officials did not voice any concern or opposition to the clinic.
0: The home of Madison Alder Gary Halverson was vandalized with graffiti saying racist on his house and oath keeper on an adjacent sidewalk with an arrow pointing to his house. This comes after Halverson's name was found on a membership list for the far right organization. Halverson says he was deceived into joining the group, thinking they were simply a group supporting veterans. He says once he found out about the group's far right activities, he resigned. Police tell WKOW they are actively investigating the incident. And those are the day's top stories. Now, on to the rest of the day's news.
1: With budget season underway, one major component of next year's budget is looking to include additional stormwater projects around the city. But a group of neighborhood residents on Madison's southwest side are concerned about one of those projects, saying that restoring the Salt Creek Greenway will lead to more harm than good. WORT producer Nate helped has the story.
2: Last night, the city's finance committee met for the second night in a row to discuss the 2023 executive capital budget. But much to the chagrin of Southwest Side residents, the Sauk Creek Greenway Restoration Project only received a few minutes of discussion. The Friends of Saw Creek is a community group of neighbors opposing the city's plan to update the Sauk Creek Greenway, an approximately mile-long waterway that directs stormwater into the nearby Wexford Pond. The plan would convert the surrounding 26 acres of land into a more stormwater-friendly area. The Greenway has had its fair share of issues over the years. Erosion is causing sediment to wash into Wexford Pond, which now requires dredging. Erosion has also caused trees surrounding the Greenway to fall into the water, causing new water channels to form and ultimately creating even more erosion. Now, the City Engineering Division, who declined an interview with WORT today but provided a written statement, is looking to remove many of the overfired. 5,000 trees in the area and deepen and widen the waterway to allow for easier storm drainage in the area. The Friends of Sonk Creek oppose the restoration plans and the inclusion of $3.6 million for it and other greenway restoration projects in Madison in the 2023 executive capital budget. The group is asking the city to consider more climate-friendly solutions for stormwater management in the area, specifically in a way to save as much of the woods as possible. Ellen Foley is one of the core founding members of Friends of Sauk Creek. She says that the city should not just rework the creek only for stormwater use, as some research shows that the creek has existed for hundreds of years.
3: So this is not a waterway that some engineer thought up in the past two years. This is a creek that has been around for a long time and a forest has grown up around it.
2: The restoration project does not yet have a final design and the Friends of Stock Creek say that the lack of public input for the project is their main concern. However, Foley fears that the city is going about the project in the wrong way.
3: We have hints
1: that are on the project page for the city's engineering project in the creek, but we have not had any
3: success In getting details about what exactly the city
4: is planning.
2: And while city officials told WORT today that there is no plan set in stone for the project as of yet, not everyone is convinced. Randy Brugman lives near Sauk Creek and is a member of Friends of Sauk Creek. He questions why the city would be asking for $3.6 million for the project in next year's budget if they don't even know what the project will look like yet. Brugman says that he doesn't believe the city has the best track record when it comes to greenway improvements.
5: There's been experience in other parts of the city. If you look up at the uh, uh, greenway project they did on Tree Lane, they basically came in and cleared the entire grove of trees out except for four or five trees, uh, graded it pretty extensively, and then walked away from it. If you look at it today, it's not very well maintained. Uh, It looks vastly different than it did uh, when the city came in and and basically did a clear cut on it. And so I think the concerns from the residents here uh, are that we're going to see the same approach.
2: City officials told WORT today that they're asking for additional funds now to go along with the budgeting process, even if they aren't ready to share details. The friends of Salt Creek say that they aren't against more stormwater projects in the area. In fact, they welcome it, as the area was hit with major flooding in 2018. However, Brugman says that all he wants from the city is a voice.
5: We're willing to uh, engage and work with the city on developing a plan that is we both can live with, and that I think that's I think that's the major ask. Because right now that they're just kind of telling us what they're they're going to do.
2: Chris Turner is also a member of Friends of Salt Creek. She acknowledges that she is no expert in stormwater management, but from a simple ecological perspective, the greenway should be preserved as much as possible.
6: And I think at this point, the way it stands is they intend to take out not just trees, although those are probably the most important, but the understory and the plants and the, everything that is in the understory and if we have learned nothing in the last few decades, it is that you cannot hardscape everything on the earth. Uh, the water has to go somewhere, and it is better to, do, to to let nature and dirt and grass and plants and trees absorb the water um, rather than just try to channel it with concrete or some sort of hardscaping.
2: The city is expected to hold public input sessions on the Greenway next spring, with construction expected to begin next fall. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate wiggy
0: Tomorrow afternoon, a group of UW-Madison art professionals will gather outside the Madison Museum of Contemporary Art. Their goal, to continue to apply pressure on Momoca for changes after its treatment of
6: black artists earlier this year. Here's our reporter, Andy Barrow. Tomorrow afternoon, a group of alumni, faculty, and students from UW-Madison's art and art history departments will read an open letter outside the Madison Museum of Contemporary Art. They'll be there to protest the mistreatment of artists during this year's Wisconsin Triennial Exhibition, which was the first triennial in the museum's history to focus exclusively on the experiences of black women, femmes, and gender nonconforming artists the letter was written in support of a statement from a collective of artists who participated in the exhibition, some of whom have pulled their work from the exhibition early. It's in support of an ongoing campaign from Forward Truth, a collection of artists in the exhibition and allies who are calling for amends, transparency, and accountability after a series of incidents during the triennial. Incidents, the artists say, would show, quote, The shameful mistreatment of the black artists, contractors, and staffers throughout the exhibition. In an open letter in Public Archive published in August, artists list numerous instances where they say they did not receive support from the museum. These include allegations that the museum promoted other events over the exhibition, that they failed to sufficiently advertise the exhibition through social media, and that they did not hire enough staff to protect the exhibition and its artists. The artists also say that Momoka has underpaid the exhibition's artists and its guest curator, Fatima Loster, who is a black woman. They also point to two separate incidents involving the same artist as examples of the museum's failure to provide proper support. In March, before the exhibit even opened, community leader and artist Laleta G and a black employee were verbally assaulted by a white employee as they entered the Overture Center building the Overture Center conducted an investigation and terminated the staffer responsible, but they also promised her that they would increase security. Gee turned that incident into an art piece on the Triennial's opening night, reading her poetry and reflections on what had occurred. Her mural was exhibited unfinished, a testament to being interrupted as a black woman. Three months later, Gee's work was defaced and stolen by a museum goer who was left unattended in the exhibition for more than 18 minutes. Here G is on Wart in July talking about the incident.
4: On Friday, I received a call from Christina, the executive director, and she started the conversation by saying "The later there's been an incident at the museum. Um, I want to let you know that uh, a parent and her children misunderstood and thought that they could interact with your exhibit, and they have painted on some of the canvases, and I'm calling to see if they wanted to know that they if they could take the canvases home with them that they painted. And I said, wait, 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 wait. You're telling me someone came to the museum, vandalized my exhibit, and you're now calling to ask me if they can take some home with them? I said, why are you calling me and asking me this? He says, Well I promised them that I would ask. And I just told I said, This is so Utterly disrespectful, I'm not going to continue this conversation with you. And I got off the phone. The artists are calling
6: on Momoka's board of trustees to take responsibility for these and other incidents, which they say show the shameful mistreatment of black artists, contractors, and staffers throughout the exhibition. Their letter includes demands that Momoka acknowledge and publicly apologize for the harm that the exhibition has done to the local community. It also calls on the board to terminate the museum's executive director, Christina Brungart, and to publicly promise not to retaliate against employees who raise concerns regarding the exhibition. Last month, Momoka's board of trustees responded in a written statement. They said that the board is deeply sorry for the trauma caused to Laleh G, but they also referred to accusations of institutional racism against the museum as inappropriate and unfounded. The board also professes support for the artists who choose to leave the exhibition, although it refers to their decision to do so as, quote, courting controversy or confusion. Forward Truth described the response as inadequate and offensive, in a reply which reiterated the artist's collective demands. Tomorrow's public reading will take place at 4pm outside of the museum on State Street, And in related news, the Madison Arts Commission will convene a community conversation with a panel of five black women artists planned for next Tuesday at 6 p.m. at the Madison College South Campus. Reporting for WORT, I'm Andy Barrow.
0: The time is now 6.21, and you're listening to the live local news on community radio station WORT.
1: When you think back to your high school days, pizza for lunch was seen as an exciting treat. But students at Madison's high schools have been eating pizza for lunch every day this year, with the school system seemingly unable to come up with anything else. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weigehaupt spoke with Scott Gerard, education reporter with the Capital Times, about what's causing the lack of nutritional lunches in Madison schools.
2: Some people say that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, but for students, school lunch is an important staple to having a productive day of learning. That's why both teachers and parents are sounding the alarm about the quality of school lunches in Madison schools just two weeks into the school year. To learn more, I'm talking now with Scott Gerard, K-12 education reporter with The Capital Times. Scott, thank you so much for joining me here today.
3: Thank you very much for having me and talking about this issue.
2: Of course. So just to just to sort of kick things off, what's what's going on with the lunches over at Madison Schools?
3: Yeah. So it's pretty inconsistent across the district right now, and that's part of the problem—a lot of inconsistency. So parents and teachers are reporting, you know, things that are listed as the menu for the day uh, not being delivered to classrooms, and even what is listed in the menu for a given day. People are pretty concerned that it's not providing enough nutrition or quite enough food for students to make it through the day while focused on academics. And so you're seeing a lot of parents considering, you know, sending their student with a sack lunch, but other families don't have that option as much. And so uh, there's just a lot of concern right now with what the district is able to provide. And the district has pointed to staffing shortages and supply chain issues, which were also an issue in the spring. But this fall, from what I understand, the staffing shortage is really a key component to the district's explanation of the challenges they're facing.
2: And so, yeah, in your story, you you talk about how one lunch for students, uh, which was a hard-boiled egg, a cheese stick, a cookie, some pears, and some uh, Dragon Punch juice. Uh, and that that was their lunch, and you sort of you sort of mention it there. It, it, they they say that it's uh, staffing issues over in. Uh, is is this specifically in the kitchens? Can you can you sort of go into that a little bit more for me?
3: Yeah, absolutely, and I'm glad you mentioned that specific lunch because from a few teachers I heard from, you know, there's been multiple meals meals where the hard boiled egg is sort of the main item uh, with those sort of sides or even less this school year. So it's. You know that's the sort of thing that teachers are, are facing. As far as staffing goes, there's both a shortage of food service workers in the school buildings, but uh, from what the district has said, uh, they're really short at the central operating area as well. Uh, there's they do the district does most of its cooking uh, at its central uh, food kitchen, um, which is on Flom Road, and then brings food to schools. Well, and that's just mostly because of schools not being having their own kitchens. Uh, There's, you know, a lot of old buildings in the district that were not built for uh, mass production of of fresh food. But, you know, a a lot of times what they're able to do if they're fully staffed, what they could potentially do is still make a lot of fresh food at that central uh, location and, and bring it to schools. But they're just having a lot of trouble uh, having enough staff to cook things that normally they would want to, so a fresh salads, pasta, bakery, grill options, things like that, and so that limits them to a lot of pre-prepared meals, and and that's what leads to things like uh, middle school lunch menus that feature um, pizza as one or both of the options every day of the week. You know, I'm looking at the middle school lunch. Options for this week and every day. The, there's three main entree possibilities. One is big cheesy pizza. One is seasoned buffalo chicken, and the other is deluxe turkey pepperoni pizza. And that's every day. And then there's a vegetarian option for uh, other things with sides like strawberry cups or a fruit and a, a vegetable. But you know, you're seeing those repeats of entrees, and then sometimes, uh, especially in elementary schools, where I heard this concern the expected entree isn't even what shows up. And that can cause problems for, you know, students with allergies or students who might be picky eaters. And at that age, there's plenty of them. I know I was. Um, And so if a parent expects one thing to be served and they know their child will like that, so they don't send a lunch, but something else is served, well, that can then uh, cause their student to not want to eat at all. And that's obviously a problem. So uh, the staffing issues are both at school buildings and the central location, but I think the central location shortages are really uh, causing the problems as far as not being able to cook as much as they'd like
2: and now of course this is this is worrying for both uh, parents and teachers over at the school can you can you sort of go into that? what have they had to say to you?
3: yeah so the the folks I talked to were just you know at one. Uh, mom called it, you know, a basic necessity of food, and and this is a mom who's worked to hand out snacks at East High School students over the past years and helped organize the group that's doing that effort, and she really said she's heard from, she's seen more students taking more snacks, more interested in snacks this year, and hearing from them that there's not enough to eat or, uh, you know, friends are asking them for food because they didn't get enough, things like that, and So there's just a lot of concerns about what it means if students are hungry at school. Um, You know, and and other parents I heard from were parents who have the means to send a bag bag lunch if uh, they need to for their child, but either want to participate in the school food program because it helps the program improve, or, uh, you know, just want their student to be able to eat the same thing their friends are eating at school. And so they're just really disappointed in the lack of consistency And then expressing a lot more concern for uh, those students who don't have that option to send that bag lunch because they rely on this meal at school. And so if they're not getting what they need from it, there's really no other solution than uh, just getting fixed.
2: Well, Scott, we're sort of running up against the clock here. Do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to uh, share with us? Anything that you think is important that we didn't cover here? Yeah I, I
3: just would say you know it's a really complicated problem. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of work that is going to go into fixing this, but it's also uh, pretty, hugely important. So I would certainly, uh, you know people who are concerned about it uh, advocate for what you think needs to be done and uh, to, to help students get their food because uh, they need it to, to learn.
2: I've been talking with Scott Gerard, K-12 through education reporter with The Capital Times, about the state of lunches in Madison schools. You can read the full story online over at captimes.com. Scott, thank you again for coming on and talking with me. Thanks for having me.
0: time is now 6.32 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I am your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us.
1: Six years ago, Mazo matey Bottoms State Natural Area closed its gate, marking the end of nude swimming on Wisconsin public land. On this episode of Parks and Landmarks, Sean Bull takes a look at the history of Meso Beach and ponders its future.
7: You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. I should probably start this episode out with a very mild content warning. Today, we're going to discuss a clothing optional beach and the reasons why it closed. My descriptions will be far from graphic, but still, this one may not be suitable for all audiences. That said, if you force a child who's too young to know what sex is to listen to WORT, you're a bad parent because they're bored out of their mind. With that out of the way, let's head to the beach. When it comes to water recreation, the people of Wisconsin are spoiled for choice. In Dane County alone, we have the Madison Four Lakes, the Yahara River, and half a dozen creeks that feed into them. We have Lake Wingra, the Sugar River, a slice of Lake Koshkenong, and more ponds in county parks than are worth counting. On top of all that, we have a little piece of some of the most pristine river for hundreds of miles. The borders of Dane County are fairly simple. With few irregularities, it's mostly rectangular, but about 10 miles of its very northwest corner are cut in a jagged diagonal by the Wisconsin River. Specifically, it's part of the Lower Wisconsin State Riverway, an officially designated nature preserve. Any Dells Duck Boat Tour Guide will tell you that the Wisconsin sports over 120 dams, that it's one of the hardest working rivers in the country. That's certainly true, but if the upper and middle sections are the state's hardest working river, the Lower Wisconsin State Riverway is where its water goes to retire. From the Lake Wisconsin Dam at Prairie du Sac, All the way to the Mississippi, the Wisconsin's water flows unrestricted, with not even so much as a beaver dam in sight. Much of the land along this 98-mile stretch is state or government-owned. You'll see individual houses and campgrounds as you float along, but once you leave Sauk City, the only other town you'll notice is Muscaday, about halfway to the confluence with the Mississippi. Unlike the Big River, which the Wisconsin eventually joins, it's remarkably quiet along the banks here. You might hear traffic on a distant country highway, but there are no train tracks flanking the lower Wisconsin's shores. Similarly, the lack of dams keeps the river low and wide. Some experienced fishers know how to keep their boats from getting stuck on sandbars. But for the most part, the only boat traffic is powered by paddles. The intended effect of this is to provide an ideal habitat for wildlife. But in a lot of ways, this is the best part of the river for people, too. On any hot summer day, you'll find swimmers and sunbathers crowding the beaches of Sauk City and the sandbars of Spring Green. The lower Wisconsin is generally deep enough to be pleasant to swim, but not too deep to stand far out from the shore. The water also flows fast enough to keep clean, but not fast enough to sweep people away. Generally. That statement requires an asterisk. Swim at your own risk and all that. My point is... People come from far and wide to swim the shores of the river, especially with how filthy the Madison Lakes get by midsummer. But there was a time, not so long ago, where they didn't have to drive even as far as Sauk County. Mazo Beach was the colloquial name for a stretch of shore a few miles north of the village of Mazamaney. It sits downstream from some private homes and the Mazamani Canoe Landing, and it's part of a much bigger parcel of state property extending inland. It's about a mile from the driveway's entrance off County Highway Y to the actual parking lot by the beach. Though this location makes Mazo Beach quite secluded, it's important that it's just barely still in Dane County, As things like Madison's annual naked bike ride demonstrate, Dane County district attorneys have long been lenient in regards to prosecuting public nudity. Wisconsin law only states that it is illegal to, quote, publicly and indecently expose one's, quote, genitals or pubic area. And it has long been the stance of the county that exposure has to be pretty explicitly sexual to count as indecent. So, while Meso Beach was never intended for nude swimmers, its seclusion and jurisdiction inevitably attracted people for that purpose. It's interesting the domino effect that this had. An influx of nude swimmers naturally drove away any beach users who were uncomfortable with nudity. In driving away the prudes, they unintentionally created something of a safe space for the LGBT community. Now, this was the late 20th century, I'm sure some naturists were able to overcome the cognitive dissonance and still be homophobic, but the saying goes that those who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And the saying doesn't say this, but I'd venture that those who walk naked in their glass houses have extra reason to be non judgmental. So, over time, Mazo Beach coalesced into a haven for nudists, LGBT folks, and the left. By the late 90s, the Christian right could no longer ignore such an obvious target and began a decades-long campaign to close it. When I say that, I don't mean the entire Christian right. Most of the effort was made by Pastor Ralph Ovidal and his hardline non-denominational church. In the late 90s and early 2000s, members of Pilgrim's Covenant Church were a common sight at the entrance to Meso Beach. They would picket and heckle people as they entered, much like you'll see outside a Planned Parenthood clinic today. In 99, the DNR put up a permanent gate at the entrance, meaning visitors had to park their cars along the road, then walk or bike the remaining mile to the beach. This measure was meant to make it difficult to enter the beach quickly and thereby discourage its use as a site for hookups. But this wasn't enough for Pastor Ovidal's followers. They believed that any nudity at the beach was intolerable, As it was causing direct harm to children like any other beach parents would bring children of all ages to Mezo, and this was a big rallying point for the people most strongly against the nude beach their concerns ranged wildly from the children's innocence will be ruined seeing naked adults to they'll be targeted by the predatory gaze all the way up to the big theory that people were bringing cameras to the beach to shoot child pornography To a modern audience, these claims seem unfounded at best and virulently homophobic at worst, but I don't think they played that well 20 years ago either. There was never much evidence of harm to children at Mazo Beach, so to advance things politically, its opponents had to focus on illegal drugs and public sex. Over the years, the DNR tried everything to stop people from enjoying themselves too much at the beach. They put up that gate They restricted open hours. They even cut down shrubs to give people fewer places to hide. And yet, every time they did a week of surveillance, they would always arrest people for sex or drugs. Now, the nude beach culture is not blameless here. Mezo Beach was renowned as a place where people could be themselves, and I'm sure some people took that too far. But can I let you guys in on a little secret? Every park is like that. You shouldn't go looking for illicit activity in parks for the same reason you shouldn't bring a blacklight to a hotel. It's better for your own enjoyment to leave some things unseen. Ultimately, that was the problem. Mazo Beach was seen by everybody. What once was a quiet shoreline in a nature preserve was now a spectacle. People just can't resist gossiping about a beach where people get naked, have drugs, and do sex. In 2012, the New York Times wrote a piece on the Mazo Beach controversy. The following year, it was written about all the way on the other side of the Atlantic by the Daily Mail. And you know what they were writing about? Honestly, a pretty mediocre swimming hole. Perhaps it's been neglected, or it's just the way the river bends and deposits things, but little pebbles pepper the sand here in a way that looks uncomfortable to walk or lay on. Other nearby beaches don't have this issue, so it kind of makes Mazo Beach immediately and noticeably inferior. Finally, in 2016, the DNR gave up. They closed Mazo Beach permanently, at least for the swimmable months of the year. There's a master plan in place to refurbish it to make it a more traditional swim beach and canoe landing. But it's been six years, and there's been no progress. In truth, without its defining gimmick, Mezo Beach doesn't seem as unique or necessary. Mezo has a great, separate canoe landing only a couple miles away. And if you want to go swimming, Sauk City isn't much farther. Despite finally being free of its dogged opposition, the future of Mezo Beach seems as uncertain as ever. Only time will tell what it holds. If you'd like to suggest a topic for parks and landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wartfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's sean.bull at wortfm.org. For WORT News... I'm Sean Bull.
1: And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, our
0: normal diurnal temperature rise today got waylaid a bit by a bank of fog and low clouds that blew into the area from the northeast around 10 o'clock this morning. A weak cold front had passed south across the state late in the overnight period, and as often happens when cold fronts come in on that trajectory, the cool air accelerated faster down the unobstructed waters of Lake Michigan than over land, uh, building vertically then and uh, creating a pressure gradient westward by mid-morning as surface heating started uh, over the land. Uh, The incoming air behind the front was roughly 10 degrees cooler than the near 70-degree lake waters, so the air saturated readily and delivered fog to areas uh, mostly east, north, and northwest of Madison. That fog and low cloudiness eventually mixed out as we got into the afternoon, finally allowing temperatures to rise more. Uh, Even then, though, we didn't quite get full sun today since we had smoke from western wildfires cascading overhead, uh, which has been the case off and on over the past couple of days. Uh, That's the reason the sky may have looked a little off from its normal color recently when you looked up. Well, you can uh, still see a little bit of that mixing out process with the fog on the visible satellite imagery that we have linked on the WORT Weather webpage this evening, uh, and get a little bit of a sense of just how far that cold front went before coming to a standstill. You can see it edged a little bit by cumulus clouds later in the day. The front is now, uh, well, not much past the end of Lake Michigan and slightly north of the Wisconsin border, uh, with winds staying generally southwesterly down in Illinois. That front will go back north shortly. Southwesterly winds will be pushing the front back northeast out of the area tomorrow as low pressure strengthens on the plains southwest of us and lifts north-northeastward towards the eastern Dakotas or western Minnesota by tomorrow evening. The upper air pattern over the continent is currently fairly blocky and meridional south of about the 55th parallel up in central Canada. Something that you can get a sense of by having a look at the water vapor image of North America that's linked on the WORT Weather webpage. And that predominance of north-south motion with the uh, trough ridge trough configuration packed into the width of the United States is going to slow down the west-east progress of this coming cold front behind this first swirl of low pressure anyway. Redeepening of that low with a follow-on wave and a second surge of moisture Friday night will propel the front a little bit closer to us, but close enough to start cutting us in on uh, warm air advection, showers, and thunderstorms anyway by Saturday, uh, perhaps before daybreak in some of the western areas, but uh, probably by midday or afternoon in any case across most of the listening area. At least that's according to the preponderance of the computer models. And I should say that the higher resolution models show a lot of different precipitation scenarios on Saturday. And we will be remaining in southerly winds through not only Saturday, but much of the weekend with increasing amounts of low-level moisture and instability. So we may see passing rounds of showers and quite possibly thunderstorms as dew points start to rise into the upper 60s and provide a fair bit of uh, upward-directed potential energy. So, in any case, while this will be our sixth wet weekend in a row, uh, it should have a far different tenor to it, uh, certainly than last weekend, with more sporadic and even more summer-like precipitation... The cold front may finally press south of us Sunday into Monday, but even uh, that's in dispute between the models. And in any case, by at least uh, later Monday and on through midweek next week, all of the longer-range models envision upper upper ridging and warmer air building back over us. But anyway, back to tonight, uh, remaining cumulus, what there is out there of it, should dissipate and we'll see if just a few high clouds passing along with a haze of smoke going overhead from west to east. Temperatures will drop to the mid to upper 50s on light east to southeast winds, generally uh, coming down below 5 miles per hour. Uh, with light easterly winds, it's possible we may see some redevelopment of the fog or low clouds. I suspect a lot of that will be confined to the eastern parts of the listening area closer to the lake, but it's a little hard to tell. Tomorrow, any low clouds should mix out as we go through the morning hours, and the sky should become mostly sunny, though with uh, passing high and mid-level clouds. Temperatures will uh, reach the mid or upper 70s on veering southerly winds coming up to 5 to 10 miles per hour by the afternoon. We'll see passing high clouds overnight with active southerly winds holding temperatures up in the low 60s, perhaps even the mid-60s. Friday should generally be sunny, but again with passing high and mid-level clouds, which may hold us off of 80 degrees, but we should be close given active uh, south to southwest winds which will be up at 8 to 12 miles per hour in the afternoon. Clouds may thicken uh, more during the overnight, but I think we'll stay dry into Saturday with a low temperature in the mid-60s on southerly winds, staying up at 5 to 10 miles per hour. And then we'll be breezy and warm on Saturday with temperatures reaching the mid or upper 70s despite more general cloud cover that day on southwesterly winds up at 8 to 15 miles per hour. Showers and thunderstorms uh, do become more likely from west to east across the area through the day Saturday, but they should be transient with some dry hours in between. Dew points will rise into the upper 60s, making it feel a lot more summer-like that day. Showers and thunderstorms are then uh, fairly likely in the overnight period period with a low temperature in the mid-60s. And Sunday we'll continue to see passing showers and thunderstorms on uh, lighter southwesterly winds with a temperature in the mid-70s, possibly with a cold frontal wind shift late in the day or in the overnight period. Uh, It's currently 67 degrees down here at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 60. Winds are out of the east at 5 miles per hour. Uh, Mostly clear over the station, just a few uh, cirrus wafting over, and uh, smoke in an otherwise clear sky, and the uh, barometer's at 30.13 inches of mercury, and fairly steady over the past few hours.
1: It's now 6.50 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to the 1967-1968 school year, when administrators worried about students with long hair and underground newspapers, and realized they weren't doing enough for civil rights. Here's Stu Levitan's report on this week's Madison in the '60s.
8: All these come on. They Madison in the 60s, the 1967-68 school year. As the school year begins, a majority of Madison school teachers have no classroom experience. And due to the continuing pay gap, only a third of the teachers whom the school board offers contracts to say yes. The new school year also brings new disciplinary problems. In the first semester, there are 346 suspensions from the five high schools, up from 144 over the same period the year before. In a district-wide memo in November, Superintendent Douglas Ritchie urges principals and teachers to, quote, take immediate steps to stop the irresponsible defiance by troublemakers under the popular guise of independence and rightism, decrying, quote, actual refusals to obey disgusting outbursts of foul language and threats, Richie warns that the number of arrogant and defiant students, quote, is increasing in number and in intensity. The most alarming feature of this is parental attitude, which actually borders on approval of irresponsible behavior. In December, the five senior high school principals, quote, unanimously reaffirm their intentions to ban students who appear with extremes in dress and grooming, including unshaven conditions such as mustaches, sideburns, and beards. Sure enough, on the 19th, Robin Zeldin, son of activist Leah Zeldin, is suspended from James Madison Memorial High School for three school days for refusing to shave his mustache. In January, Judge Richard Bardwell grants Zeldin a temporary restraining order preventing the school board from suspending her 15-year-old son again for not shaving his mustache. On January 15th, West High School principal R. C. Betcher bans students from bringing the current issue of the underground newspaper Connections into the school because he finds some of the artwork in the current issue quote, obscene. In late February, the school board rejects the Council of Parent Teacher Association's request for more discussion and adopts a dress, grooming, and conduct code which subjects boys to suspension and expulsion for wearing facial hair. The youth of today need boundary lines, Superintendent Ritchie says in pushing for adoption of the rules which all principals had endorsed. The board first rejects then unanimously approves a motion by Board Vice President Mrs. Ruth B. Doyle that pupils facing expulsion get a written notice of charges and the right to a hearing with representation. Veteran Board member and longtime UW baseball coach Arthur Diney Mansfield says that police working on drug issues have told him, quote, that all the boys arrested were of the long hair variety. Some say there is no connection— but our principals feel differently. Behind the mustache, the beard, the long hair, and improper dress lies the real reason for their actions. A defiance of authority, lack of discipline, disrespect for rules and regulations, disobedience to their parents, as well as school personnel. The new rules also require dress that is, quote, neat and appropriate to the occasion and in keeping with good taste, and provide that, quote, extremes in hair length and style will not be permitted. Pupils are also required to, quote, adhere to school rules, regulations, and directives, exhibit respect for the school staff, and develop standards of personal conduct which exhibit respect and deference to authority. Amid continuing controversy, the board in fall reopens consideration of the code for further discussion. Fifteen-year-old Robin Zeldin remains in school and still wears his mustache. In April, School Research Director Clifford Hawley tells the school board that Longfellow School, 210 South Brook Street, is, quote, in critical trouble due to a continuing decline in enrollment. Hawley says that the school census has dropped by half since 1955, primarily because hundreds of homes in the Greenbush neighborhood have been torn down for the Triangle Urban Renewal District. On April 9th, Superintendent Ritchie keeps schools open during the funeral of Martin Luther King Jr., directing building principals to use their own judgment in deciding how to impart the significance of King's life to their pupils. A month later, Ritchie acknowledges to the Citizens Committee for the Teaching of Negro History in Madison Schools that he could, quote, identify no threat of continuity in how the schools present any non-white history and culture. School board member Professor John McDonald, husband of civil rights activist Betty McDonald, knows they have work to do. The blind spots are so vast they're appalling, he says. Betty Faye, chair of the Equal Opportunity Commission's Education Committee, agrees. Our Negro citizens are growing very discouraged and time is running out, she says in late May, urging the board to create a Human Rights Curriculum Supervisor and a Director of Human Relations. Black children, quote, are not having anywhere near an equal education, she says, due to, quote, the climate and prejudicial attitudes of white pupils and teachers who, quote, don't have the background and understanding to relate to blacks. The much-ballyhooed 1964 human rights curriculum guide is, quote, merely gathering dust, EOC Director Reverend James C. Wright adds. The job would be challenging, quote, There does not yet exist an American history book which includes the role and impact of the American Negro in history, Fay notes. A new Human Relations Progress Report later documents the trouble Madison is having hiring and keeping black teachers. Of the 1,850 professional staff in the system, only 16 are black. Negroes have excellent employment opportunities, and we are unable to attract many applicants, Ritchie admits. In June, the Director of Secondary Education accuses the local Students for a Democratic Society of trying to foment youthful rebellion, especially at West and James Madison Memorial High Schools. Conan Edwards tells the Mayor's Citizens Advisory Committee that that the unauthorized newspaper High School Voice— published by the young activist group High School Students for Social Justice, shares a publishing address with the underground paper Connections and contains stories, quote, outside the realm of normal decency. There are about 40 members in the social justice group. High School Voice Chairman Jonathan Lipp and Editor Allison Steiner deny any ties to SDS and call Edwards' charges, quote, "...a reflection of a paranoid fear that local high school students are capable of organizing themselves independently against the authoritarian attitudes of school administrators." In August, Superintendent Ritchie blames permissive parents for the rise in student activism, which he says is one of his two biggest problems, along with whether or not to build a new high school. Quote, parents have gone too far in wanting their children to try everything, he says to strong applause at an Optimist Club meeting. There really isn't a generation gap, he says. It's a gap between intelligence and common sense. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, school bell ringing listener-supported WRT news team, I'm Stu Levitan.
0: And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer was David Aarons. Our reporter was Andy Barrow. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan was our engineer this evening. Nate Weggy helped produce the newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure.
1: And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.